How's it going, man? That's gone. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> been so long since we've done this. You went away. You were gone. It's only USA. been a month, dude. Only been a month. Yeah, I was in. Uh, I was. I went down under. Down under. And I I did twenty five performances in thirty days, traveling three thousand seven hundred kilometers, which equates to two thousand two hundred twenty nine miles. Two thousand miles of with Dave and crew, right? And, uh, and well, yeah, my tour manager and my stage technician travel in the SUV, while my lighting designer and production manager, sound guy, travels in the six ton truck. Oh, whoa! And you're in the limo out front. <laughs> the limo, uh, try <laughs> SUV. <laughs> ah, so man, you're back on tour. How did it feel? Uh, it was great. I mean, uh, you know, people are, oh, boy, that must be hard. Two shows a night. We sold out almost every show. Oh, that must be so hard. And it, it isn't. I perform puppets for a living. I make people laugh. It is, I'm blessed to do this. You know, sitting in an office all day long is hard. Being on, on a construction site is hard. Geez, fixing the roads in the hot summer is hard. So I'm just yeah, blessed. Yeah, yeah, I know you have I'm a blessed. tough, you know, those hotels you have to stay in, all the well, fans okay. surrounding you, the good if, food, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, the applause, the the love that you feel every <laughs> night, you know. That's got to be good, though. I mean, really, enjoy it, you know. Oh, yeah, I do enjoy it. And I'm very fortunate and blessed. And I also gave back to the community. I, I visited some children's hospitals. So that, oh, was, cool. that was great. It was good. So... I'm back home now for the summer, and then um, I'm on a privately funded fossil dig in Montana, where they privately said funded. Hmm. Yeah, so well, you could actually go to a museum and and pay for these things. So if you pay for it, you get to maybe tag along, or if you help pay for it. No, no, is no. What I'm saying deal? is, if you any anybody wants to go, most museums have a thing where you can go out and you pay to fossil. Right. It's your right. free work, your free labor. So yeah, here's a yeah. shovel, dig like so this. So this is a privately funded dig that I'm uh, going on. Cool. What are you digging and, for, man? Well, they said that there is a, possibly a juvenile Tyrannosaurus in the Hell Creek Formation. What? Yeah, a, a Triceratops frill and a turtle the size of a truck tire. A land turtle or a... Yeah, it must be. Well, this is I just guess. after the KPG boundary. So it's uh, very uh, now, wait, early... No. Huh? It's after the KPG. So what do you do yes. with dinosaurs? Yes. That doesn't make sense, Dave. Okay. The boundary is right there where I'm going. Okay. It's literally right there. You could go on either side of it is what you're saying. You can go on either side and ah, be, uh, be sans the... dinosaurs or with dinosaurs. So you're in the Cretaceous over here and in the Paleocene over there. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Right I got the, it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you're going to get the Triceratops. You know, it would be astounding news if you found a Triceratops on the other side over there in the Paleogene. Yeah. You know, that would... <laughs> we would we would read about that one. But, yeah, uh, I don't that's think cool. it's going to happen. Yeah, so that's me and my son are going to do that and really looking for big sky country, crazy yeah, well, weather. What museum camping. is doing this? What museum? Oh, Museum of the Rockies out of Bozeman, Montana. And who's your hosts there? They are fantastic paleontologists, John Scanella and Lee Hall. Oh, who excellent. is a uh, partner to Ashley Hall, who we've interviewed on Paleonerds. Ah, excellent, man. That's that's cool. Well, take your uh, sunscreen and take your sun, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> See what I did there? So that's cool. So you're going to be out there in the site for a while? Well, just a week. So that'll be great. Well, maybe and they I've find something. I've never really something. done that. You know, I've gone fossicking uh, all over, but I've never been on a, an actual dig that uh, these guys have been doing it for decades. And 
Oh, really? Uh, so you never yeah. have? Okay. Oh, no, no. Never done an, an actual dig, you know, from an institution. No. You use the have word... You? You use the word fossicking, dude. So it's that's a down under term. Yeah, fossicking means to look for stuff. Yeah, yeah, to fossick and, around. And have you been on a? Have you been on? You've been on digs. Did you? I've been on digs. Yeah, I've been on several digs in my life now. Oh, that's and, right. Uh, you went to the uh, as the a middle aged man. River, I went right? to the Colville River. I went on an ammonite hunt in nineteen ninety eight with our guest today, and uh, he introduced me to the world of our digs. guest today. Yeah. No, we have a guest. Oh, my- Oh my goodness, that's right. We're interviewing. Wait. Yeah, we're we're back to that. But I wanted to talk about what I'm doing. Enough about you, Dave. Okay. <laughs> At least act interested, man. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, no, you're naming your digs. I want to go back. Covo River. You went. So where were the where was the Ammonites? Ammonites in Kremlin, Colorado, and right. uh, visited various sites. I went to uh, Dinopalooza in Wyoming, and that was a Active it all like source. a party concert. It Dino was a party Palooza. concert kind of thing, yeah. And um, found um, ichthyosaurs with Dr. Johnson. We um, up in Wyoming somewhere, I forget. But uh, yeah, I've been on been oh, wow. various That's digs. Great. And I've been on, of course, I've been on some very private digs with you. We've yes. been, well, we haven't really dug. We just observed and really never collected much. But uh, that's been really the basis for Paleo Nerds was me going out to some of these places in Alaska and you telling me all about it and me asking questions. And that's how this podcast came about. That's right. I thought this was fossil deprived up here, but it turns out, you know, fossils are everywhere, man. Yeah. Kind of yeah. a theme. But hey, I just want to tell you, I have a three-legged bear in my yard. So not everybody has yeah, that. You sh- yeah, it's so sad. I saw the video and uh, it looks just like his left front paw was removed by a steel trap. That's what it looks like. Yes, I think uh, like the whole lower arm there was removed by a yeah. trap. I believe. But he that's... gets around fine according to the video in your that you sent me. Well, yeah, what's been interesting, I posted this. It's getting all kinds of attention. This is from a game camera that my neighbor put out pointing at my yard because there's been bear shit all over the place. Can I say that? Bear crap. No. Bear crap all over the yard, so we knew that uh, something was going on. My uh, uh, my neighbor put a game camera out, and we have several videos now of. I'm calling them hobbles. Yeah, um, that's uh, original. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there were the obvious ones like Eileen, Peg. or Stumpy, or Tripod, or yeah, Peg. But anyways, it turns out that uh, old Hobbles has been all over the neighborhood, and actually for years now. And so there's a lot of other videos of him here in. Uh, does Here, anybody Roman. know the nature of his uh, no, missing no. foot? No. No. It looks like it might have happened when he was but a youngster, and uh, it's yeah. well healed, and he, he gets around. But, yeah, uh, trapping, man, I don't know. That's so, so sad. No, yeah, I'm I'm just so over the idea of any kind of hunting. Um, yeah. Uh, and even though fishing, you know, I mean, I still do love fishing, but even that as an old, as an older man. Yes, I'm just we not are sensitive guys. killing anything. Yeah, we're sensitive. We're well, sensitive. I am. I don't know about you. Nah, I'm pretty hardened. <laughs> I'm Alaskan, man. But um, but hey, segueing to our guest, should we talk about our guest? You want to do uh, that? Well, we're going to be talking to him for probably an hour or more. And uh, one thing I love about this guest, I've probably spent more time with him than any of the other guests that we've ever had on Paleo Nerds. It's been 55 episodes since we had our first guest, Dr. Kirk Johnson, on this show. So what a great way to uh, bring him back uh, and see what's been happening in between. 
and he's been listening to all of our shows. We'll see. No. Oh, d- yeah. He's... Where's the critique? Well, let's <laughs> let's see what he has to say if he wants to say anything. We won't tease it out. Maybe it'll just happen naturally. And and tell me again, what what does he do again? He works at the local Quick Stop down the street, or what is uh, the other job he does? Well, he's a paleobotanist by training, so he studies prehistoric plants. But yes. he is the director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. What the Smithsonian? Yeah, yeah, the one. The, what you mean? The, you mean the biggest the one natural with history? pictures of him and David yeah. Attenborough, like like having fun in his office? That guy. Yeah, that guy looking at a piece of art that you own, by the way. So thank you very much at, yeah. at that Ammonite drawing. Well, and, we'll uh, have that on the website. Uh, the picture I have that photo of you and uh, Kirk dancing to that picture that you drew, uh, and also him and David Attenborough at the same the same picture. Yeah, so let's nerd out with our our buddy Kirk, shall we? Let's call him up on the old, you know, paleophone. Hey, Dave, welcome back. Kirk Johnson, director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. Kirk, what up, man? Hey, Ray. Hey, Dave. What's going on, you guys? It's been like, what, 50 episodes since you saw me last? This will be 56th. You are the very first guest we had on Paleo Nerds, so it's an honor to have you back. I got to say, I've been really loving Paleo Nerds, you guys. It's been, uh, really? I've, I've listened to almost all of them, and it's been really fun to sort of uh, watch you guys wander through the fields of fossils and meet all the amazing people <laughs> that are out there doing cool things. It's been an amazing profession. Yeah. Thank you. That's really kind of you. Yeah, thank you. It's a, been an eye-opener for me not being an academic. Yeah, no, it's a different world, that's for sure. Well, yeah, we have been uh, having so much fun doing all this. And, you know, a lot of the connections that you and I made over the years, you know, and, and scientists, you know, as you said, that you're a scientist that collects artists and I'm an artist that collects scientists. And um, <laughs> and uh, Dave's a ventriloquist that apparently collects artists and scientists. So <laughs> And puppets. And puppets, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he's a ventriloquist, that makes us... Yeah, his fans. The dummies. But, there you yeah. go. Oh, man. So, hey, you know, we've been hanging out here a lot uh, here in the last couple of years, you know, staying at home. And uh, did you guys watch Prehistoric Planet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what's, what's your take on it, man? You know, Prehistoric Planet was pretty amazing. First of all, David Attenborough is 96 years old, which yeah. blows wow. my mind. Now, all he had to do was, like, take three steps onto a green screen. So it wasn't like he was actually marching <laughs> through the landscape, but the guy's picture perfect. And uh, it's amazing. It was, it was just lovely watching him wander into a Cretaceous meadow. And they're like, there's Attenborough, there's Cretaceous meadow. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, insane. Um, that having been said, it's really interesting yes. because I remember the, the very first um, BBC's Walking with Dinosaurs series. I don't know how long ago that was, but... Um, as a paleobotanist, these things really um, get my goat because they're reconstructing <laughs> the late Cretaceous, which is a time that, you know, in many ways, the vegetation sort of looked like what it looks like right now. And we have a pretty good idea of late Cretaceous vegetation, but it allows BBC to basically take modern vegetation and put dinosaurs in it. It's the same thing they did at Jurassic, the original Jurassic Park. Amazing work with dinosaurs and and pterosaurs and marine reptiles, incredible animation, great CGI. But they're filming them in modern landscapes, which 
Right. I, I noticed that too. It's like, you know, wait, having hung out with you, I was critiquing the whole thing too, going, wait, they're just plunking. They shot this stuff in Hawaii or Madagascar or something. Or Alaska. And they're plunking dinosaurs into it. Yeah. Or Alaska. You know? So, so I, you know, I, mean, I, I thought the dinosaurs but, were, were amazing though. I mean, they were yeah. absolutely oh, yeah. so realistic. But the ecology around them left me with some major questions like the, the sauropods in the desert around that water hole. And there's no greenery anywhere. And don't sauropods need tons of food per day to survive? Or was that a stretch or not, you think? There is a profound bias that was present in Walking with Dinosaurs that's still there, which is <laughs> that if you find a dinosaur fossil somewhere, you have an inherent um, accidental bias to reconstruct that ancient landscape as the same as it is today. Right. So you find a dinosaur in a desert, then you think, oh, these are desert dinosaurs. And if you find a dinosaur in northern Alaska, then there must have been snow. And to me, it's right. like basic 101. The world changes a lot. And we find dinosaurs in the desert because there's no plants covering the landscape now. And you can find dinosaurs because there's lots of rocks. And you find dinosaurs in Alaska for the exact same reason. And then it drove me nuts, really, to see that one episode about dinosaurs in the snow and ice. Yeah, I know, I know. You know, you and I have been through this. We did our second book, you know, Cruise the Fossil Coastline. We went to Alaska. We dug up dinosaurs. And I so badly wanted to put that Pachyrhinosaurus and the Nanooksaurus in a snowy field because it would look so cool. But you didn't let me, man. No, I know. You could have worked for BBC, Ray. They wouldn't let you do <laughs> but it. There's, but there's no proof. I mean, why would they... I saw the making of Prehistoric Planet, yeah. and they said if if there was a questionable data, we didn't put it in. But having pachyrhinosauruses in the snow is pretty questionable. Yeah, no, I think that they've uh, they just kind of missed the point about how animals live because they talk about how it was pitch black in the winter and it was cold, which it was right. The high, in the high Arctic in the summers you have summer. 24 hours a day in the winter. It's winter. It's dark 24 hours a day. And uh, most people assume that, well, therefore, it must have been really cold. But the fossil record pretty much tells us that the polar regions were surprisingly warm in the winter in the darkness. And we don't even know the chemistry of how that happens, but, but that's what we know. And then just sort of just see these amazing, jagged, modern British Columbia peaks covered in snow and the dinosaurs marching around in the snow and their pachyrhinosaurus defending the Nanookasaurus in the snow. I'm like, come on, you know, just stop. Yeah. Just stop. It makes it makes for good drama, you know, but good background yeah, but, stuff. But, and, science, but we nerds are... Science know. is not supposed to be great drama. It's got to be factual-based drama. But this is entertainment, man. You're watching it on your yeah, TV. Well, go, so. go watch Jurassic World if you want entertainment. Oh, which, Dominion. Yeah, that was such a, uh, a piece of uh, fluff. I mean, there was yeah. there was some dinosaur candy in there, but it was so so bad. Yeah, I haven't I haven't watched the, the, the Dominion. But what I will say about the BBC thing is that what I did like about Prehistoric Planets was that it it was very much like a David Attenborough does some modern place. Like, you know, he's known for his amazing photography of the birds of paradise, yeah. where he goes and watches these incredible things on planet Earth that most people have never seen because they've never been to where birds of paradise live. They've never caught them at the moment of the mating dance. And they did oh, that. You're right in, here. They did that. <laughs> there we go, right. <laughs> 
they did they did that with prehistoric planet they speculated about things that might have happened that we have no way of knowing if they happened and i kind of liked that i i love the creativity with it you yeah. know some of the the creative department some of the scenarios to start out with a swimming t-rex you know it's like all right here's the logic behind that and swam out to the island to have the babies or lead the babies out there and so i thought it was really creative and but you've had actually had the opportunity to hang out with Sir David, right? And and know, get to know him as a person. Is he like that? What's he like in, in person? No, it, Sir David is amazing. He is uh, kind and knowledgeable and interesting and interested. He loves fossils. He's like a kid around fossils. And really? uh, you know, I think I think he's he's my hero. That guy is amazing. He's been doing TV for like fifty or sixty years, and. For anybody who does TV, and I do a little bit of TV myself, the guy is so good at what he does that he makes it hard to compete in any possible way. And it's it's amazing to think of this guy's 96 years old and punching out how many TV shows did he do this last month? He did like three or four. Yeah, many episodes of many things. And so he's he's a national treasure in the United Kingdom, and he's uh, uh, just an amazing, amazing person. He's one of those icons of our childhood that's still around. He's sort of like the Jacques Cousteau or Jane Goodall or E.O. Wilson, David Attenborough. I mean, these are the giants of our time that have helped us see the natural world and the the planet we live in. And uh, guy's amazing. Well, Kirk, you're going to be on that short list if you aren't on it already. When I'm 96. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you're 96. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things, uh, well, a couple of things I've learned from you uh, from all the years that we've been driving around with a couple of books we've done and we're working on a redo right now. Yeah, wait, is... tell us, tell me about that, you guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys careful, did Fossil you... Freeway yeah. in what year? 2007. And you lived together, but you traveled around, right? Years uh, before that, car. yeah. 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 And then, now why do the book again? Well, you know what? It's it's the American West, right? So amazing things are happening out there all the time. And we we finished the road trip for Cruise of the Fossil Freeway in 2005. Book came out in 2007. And um, then we kicked around for a while, so we got to do another trip. And so we did a series of trips that created the Cruise of the Fossil Coastline, yeah. which came out in 2018. Accidentally. There was no plan. So it's been, it's getting close to uh, 18 years since we finished driving around the American West. And 18 years is a long time when it comes to fossil discoveries because so many people are looking for fossils and finding them. And new museums are being built. New dinosaurs are being discovered. New concepts are being turned out. So you could go, we went back and read the book. And it's like, wow, there's a lot of new stuff that we could put in this book and refresh the book. Is it going to be like a second edition? or It uh... is, truly. It's a second edition. Right. So we're going to completely revamp it because basically they're gone. People can't get them now. They're like secondhand. It's Mm -hmm. like, we got to bring this out. It's a classic, but how do we update it? Well, I sold uh, mine on eBay for (laughs) (laughs) $2.99. I would have given you three bucks for it, man. But but one of the things that, you know, you taught me about the landscapes as I got to, you know, drive around with you, you know, and I was doing the art thing and you were doing the science thing, that fossils are... The memory of the earth, I like that phrase. You use that phrase a lot. And uh, the fossils are everywhere. And there's been all these major discoveries in the last 20-some years that we didn't include in the book. And so the other day I said, man, send me a list of the highlights. What are the big highlights in the last 20 years in the American West? And that's, what's the biggest, man, What in the last 
20 or so years that we didn't get in the book? Well, you know, for me, it was a hands-down, easy um, answer to that question, which is the big discovery made at Snowmass Colorado, which we talked about last time I was with you guys in 2010, when we found this high elevation ice age discovery that yielded 6,000 bones from more than 50 mastodons and 12 mammoths and a whole bunch of other cool ice age animals in that whole world. So that was an incredible one. But then there's one that was quite recent, uh, which was the discovery in 2018 of human footprints with mammoths yes. down oh, in San White Diego. Sands. No, no, the San Diego one was pretty cool, oh, too. Oh, the footprints, yeah, right, yeah. the footprints across... In New Mexico. And then, of course, this this discovery um, by um, Tom Demeray in San Diego of what looks like evidence for humans 130,000 years ago. Yeah, which... That's mind-blowing. So do you accept that uh, that idea? I mean, what do you think about that idea? Uh, so, you know, I, um, I visited San Diego and looked at the specimens that Tom found at this site near San Diego of... Well, just explain what that yeah. is for yeah. our listeners yeah. who don't so, know. Yeah. So basically, it's a, a, a deposit near San Diego that has um, broken up mastodon bones, including some tusks and teeth, and some round hammer stones that have percussion marks. So like, it looked like somebody had taken rocks and smashed these mastodon bones. And the bone breakage looks like it's in fresh bone. It's called green breaks. And um, there are no other stone tools, but it's, it looks really clear that somebody broke up a bunch of mastodon bones with a bunch of round rocks. And is there any uh, controversy about the dating of, of oh, yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is found on a terrace that is um, from the, the most, the previous Ice Age interval, the Saginaw, which is like 130,000 years ago. And they did uh, a couple of dating techniques that gave dates of around 130,000 years. Now, this is, that is way older than anybody ever thought yeah. that humans were in North America. They're sort of the the accepted date was sort of zeroing in around 17,000 years ago. And here's a fossil that's 130,000, almost 10 times older. And the 17,000, is that way down in Chile or is that like New Mexico Clovis? 17,000 is sort of a combination of uh, looking at genetic dates from human remains and also archaeological sites. The Clovis is about 13,000, but there are some sites in, in um, Idaho that are about 16,000. And of course, this new discovery from New Mexico, which is 21 to 23,000. So there's oh, sort of this right. whole body of accepted knowledge that humans were here 17,000. The White Sands, New Mexico thing pushed it back to 23,000. And then there's this weird discovery from San Diego, which is way older. Well, you know, what blows my mind about that 100,000 years, it could maybe technically not even be our species. Yeah, it could have been Homo erectus, conceivably. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, but... But. It's uh, not been widely accepted, and I think for good reason, because extraordinary statements demand extraordinary data. And I think the site is consistent with uh, human origin, but it doesn't have enough. There's no human bones. There's no obvious stone tools. There's no Swiss Army knife, if you will. There's <laughs> like no smoking gun that it was human uh, but when I look at those things, I'm like, this is plausible. In my mind, it's a plausible find. Yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. One of the things, too, I think is cool is that there's a, one of the mastodon bones is, like, vertical. Yeah, tusk. You know? The tusk is yeah. driven vertically into the ground, yeah. That doesn't weird. happen naturally, weird. so. Yeah.
Now I have a question just on the Snowmass site. You, you found a, a huge number of individuals, but was there any new paleontology learned from all that? Because I mean, there's many, many uh, Ice Age fossil sites, but and this was prolific. Yeah, there were no uh, new species, no unknown species. I mean, there was a pretty, um, there, were, there are two different faunas that we found. There was an older fauna that had American mastodons, um, giant bison latifrons, and Jefferson's ground sloths in it. And then we found a younger fauna that had uh, mammoths and deer. There's so oh. diff two different time periods in this one location. And they were, you know, you usually don't find the mammoths and the mastodons together. And these were technically not together. It was the same place, but different times. Right. So it was a kind of a cool site because it's sort of two sites for the price of one. And each one of them was a really amazing site. So I was like, you know, this is, could not be better. Again, we were there uh, in your office when you got the phone call. Yeah. Yep. And uh, on a subsequent visit, I have a photo of my son and I with the Latifrons in the uh, the fossil prep. Yeah, room. yeah, yeah. No, amazing discovery that one was. But, you know, so that was like a diversion into the Ice Age. But there have been a tremendous number of people looking for dinosaurs out west and finding endless new dinosaurs, it seems. There's a whole area around uh, Grand Staircase, correct? That's fairly new to science in the last 20 years. We didn't write about it much in our book. That's right. We just we talked about the um, the Parasaurolophus plays the blues because there's an amazing set of badlands near Escalante, New Mexico, Utah, which has produced uh, a couple of Parasaurolophus dinosaurs. But it's really rugged country, and starting in about the mid '90s, um, people started to poke their way into these really remote badlands. And by the uh, 2000s, um, University of Utah was um, helicoptering into these places you couldn't really hike into. Denver Museum started going there. The Raymond Alf Museum started going there. And people were finding a, a new Campanian dinosaur world. And the Campanian is the second to the last time period of the Cretaceous. It's the age of dinosaur provincial park up in Alberta. It's a super rich dinosaur time. If you look at dinosaur diversity, it's, it peaks in the Campanian. Um, it was certain sites having 25, 30 dinosaur species in a single formation. Oh, that's the peak of dinosaur diversity then? Yeah. The, the it, last it, one is the Maastrichtian, is the last That's right. Age. And there's, But there's a big debate about whether the Maastrichtian actually sees a decline in diversity or not. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit tricky to count dinosaurs, but no one would dispute that the Campanian is not the, the most diverse we've seen. I mean, like six or seven kinds of hadrosaurs, six or seven kinds of horned dinosaurs, and um, lots of tyrannosaurs and ankylosaurs and ornithomimids. And Virtually everything coming out of there is new to science, yeah, right? Yeah, well, that's I mean, the kind of cool thing is like they're, um, they're the, the same groups of dinosaurs are there that you see in Dinosaur Provincial Park and up in Montana in the Campanian and like the Two Medicine Formation and places where Jack Horner was finding dinosaur eggs. But here down in, in Utah is this whole new location and all the dinosaurs are slightly different. There's a slightly different... Um, horned dinosaurs and slightly different duckbill dinosaurs and slightly different armored dinosaurs and slightly different tyrannosaurs. So it's, it's another view. Is this over in uh, the Laramidia side of yep. the uh, continent? Remember, Laramidia is the western half of North America right. during the Cretaceous when the seaway was there. So this would be the, the eastern side of Laramidia and the western side of the western interior seaway. 
Okay. Right? The Proto Rocky Mountains, which is the Laramide orogeny, mm-hmm. is the <laughs> you western. Like to say that. I love to say that <laughs> yeah. is the western side of the Western Interior Seaway. That's right. But the eastern side was all pretty much flat in the Proto-Appalachia. Yeah, and you don't, you we go. don't have too many fossils from on the eastern side, although people have been finding fossils over there as well. Um, well, Georgia. Did yeah. we speak to Cam Muscoli, who found Absolutely. them in Georgia? Yeah. There, there are fossils that be found on the east coast. And Ray and I have been talking for a while about, should we do the east coast book? Because... We That's didn't. a lot of sliders from White Castle. <laughs> <laughs> to be sure. Uh, Waffle well, House, actually, man. Waffle House. Yeah. When we look at it in terms of geologic time, it's like these ten year swaths and uh old Mr. Troll is not getting any younger. I know I'm gonna I've hired a four wheel drive wheelchair for Ray and we're gonna take him out and do... <laughs> No, just pull him on a trailer. Just yeah, it's a big sled. You just haul him along. Yeah. But there's yeah, there's ha- plenty to, me in. there's plenty to do on the East Coast, man. There's I keep thinking about it. Living in Washington DC now, there are fossils. Can I go back real quick? Oh right. you made me think of East Coast, then I thought of Kenneth Lacovera, then I thought of, of Dreadnoughtus. They showed in Prehistoric Planet these air sacs coming yeah, out yeah. of their neck. Is there any evidence for that, or is it just pure conjecture? Totally pretty speculative, but of course, dinosaurs did have a different way of breathing than mammals do. I mean, dinosaurs had these this air sac breathing mechanism. Right. So The bones were hollow and had air sac throughout the... Uh, yeah. yeah, so I think this is what they were kind of getting at. There might have been a superficial expression of that. There's, there's no evidence for it at all. But got to give them points for uh, guessing wildly. Yeah, well, that looked like we were on an alien planet rather than uh, the Lake Cretaceous. Yeah. Yeah, well, they were having fun, the creative department, you know, but uh, hey. So what else has happened in the fossil west, though? Well, just ticking through some of these things. There's been a lot of um, well, a lot of dinosaurs that have been Tannis, bought and sold. Tannis. Oh, what wait, do you think uh, of our episode with Tannis? Did we, oh, did we walk going that right to fine that. line? Did we walk the fine <laughs> line of uh, giving the guy enough credit but not enough? Well, no, I really um, was listening with great attention to your report on Tannis because, you know, Tannis was discovered... By, by Steve Nicholas, who's a commercial paleontologist who found this site that had a lot of fossil fish, and he decided he didn't want to deal with the fish, and he turned the site over to Robert De Palma, who's been working on it ever since. And he's been making pretty amazing statements about what happened to Tannis and releasing them to places like the New Yorker magazine or this podcast and various things. And then there's the, the uh, dinosaur apocalypse, which also had David Attenborough on it, hey, on PBS and BBC. And um, he did a recent presentation at NASA at Goddard. And he's still putting out a lot of statements that have yet to be backed up with the scientific papers. And even when he talked to you guys, he was saying, oh, you should never talk about stuff in the media until you publish it in a peer reviewed journals. As he was talking about it, having not right. published it in a peer-reviewed journal. So uh, interesting to watch. I mean, it's, it's clearly a, a fascinating site. And I have been to the site. I did go to Tannis when I didn't know what it was. I knew that it was the site that had produced the fossil fish, but it's about 10 meters below the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. So I assumed it was Cretaceous. And But if this site is, is one of the greatest paleontological finds of this century, I mean... There's so much excitement. I kind of can't blame him for him leaking some of this stuff, but you're right. Uh, the paper needs to come out first, then the claim. Uh, or how does it work in paleontology? Well, Is the claim first, and then the paper comes out like the day after? Or it's you no, know, it's been an eight-year leak. 
is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's been leaking slowly for a while. And I think um, there's some there's some amazing fossils, no doubt about it. I mean, I uh, what he hints at in the TV show are dinosaur feathers, which, um, boy, it'd be great to see an actual photograph of that. They sort of show up a little bit in the TV show. He's mentioned them and like, It'd be nice. I see that there's little glimpses and then they cut away. Yeah, so like, what's, yeah. what's that all about, right? I mean, I don't understand. Like, this is eight years. If this is, uh, and no one, no one has found in North America a validated dinosaur feather ever, right? So that's, it would be a unique find in North America. And if he has one, we would love to see it. But, but right now. Well, he described it. He described yeah. it in detail to oh, us a bit. And, yeah. uh, yeah, 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 but uh, you know, I I think he's a maverick. He doesn't play by the rules. But like Dave said, we're just all we're like kids in the can. We just got to see it. So it's got to be incredibly difficult to be sitting on this and not want to tell spot. everybody. And yeah. not want to. You know, I don't know. So I feel for him, and <laughs> yeah, you know, and I understand the scientific community pushing back, and but you know, it's it's interesting to watch it all play out. Yeah, no, I think the bottom line of Tannis, which I think is a key point, is that the asteroid impact did happen in a moment. And it looks like he was lucky enough to catch a fossil site that captured that moment. That's really cool. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. the, the, the bottom line conclusion doesn't deviate from what we've been saying since the late 80s, which was, guess what? There was an asteroid impact that whacked the dinosaurs. And so in a day. Well, it had to be a day. It had to be a day, yeah. right? The thing came in like a boom, it was there. Had there had to be that moment. And the I think the really interesting insight from Tannis is that there's this seismic wave that goes ahead of the ejecta. So you start shaking right. up the landscape first, you start churning it up. And remember, to become a fossil, you have to um, die and get buried. And if you do that simultaneously, say you're getting killed by the thing that's burying you, gives you a pretty good chance. And he just happened to be lucky enough to get a fossil site that was churned up in advance of the advancing ejection and actually caught the moment and fossilized yeah. the moment. That's cool. Now, what, yeah. what, one thing I could never get a direct answer on, and that is, is there any ejecta closer to the impact site, the Chicxulub Crater, which is large amounts of boulders or oh, yeah. huge chunks. Oh, yeah. Where is there that? Are. There's a place in Belize where uh, there's a limestone. I'm going there, by the way, New Year's. We should go. Yeah. This is a limestone what? quarry that has um, building-sized boulders that were thrown really? from the impact 300 miles. Really? I mean, these are, you know, these are things the size of buildings that were lobbed. And are they like impacted into limestone or into the ocean yeah, floor? Yeah, exactly. Or? They're gigantic limestone chunks that are smashed all together, and they're the giant boulders. So, if you were a, a mile away, you'd see them raining down and impacting like uh, a science fiction film. Yeah, like giant buildings flying through the air at you. <laughs> so they can actually figure out that these rocks came from elsewhere but is that it just in belize there's nothing in texas or in mexico or in the caribbean well no i mean they like for instance the kt boundary section in haiti is much thicker than it is elsewhere so like if you oh. if you get this is how they found out where the chicxulub crater was in the first place was they were noticing there were places where the ejecta layer was thicker in the vicinity of the gulf of mexico hildebrand it was the um, graduate student who actually located the crater he looked at the cores the, the petroleum company's cores right well that's how he confirmed it but he was looking in the caribbean because 
you were seeing the ejector was a little bit thicker. He sort of zeroed on the search. And the, the site had been found, the crater had been found by an oil and gas company uh, geologist who worked for Pemex in Mexico. And in 1982, the guy went to a conference and said, I think I found the crater. And everybody ignored him. And so, <laughs> so yeah, he, yeah, said, yeah. Took his, he, he took his toys and went home. And then nine, like eight years later, a graduate student's like, oh, I relocated the crater that this guy, Glenn Penfield was his name, Glenn found it, then he no one paid attention to him, so he went away. So the crater was known within two years of the original Alfred's paper, but not recognized formally for a decade. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Interesting. Wow. Hey, one of the big finds over the last 20 years, too, has been um, the dueling dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. That's, can you can you tell me about the dueling dinosaurs? You've actually got to look at yeah, it. Yeah, and I went up and had a good look. They're amazing. It's um this is there's been a, a rapidly growing commercial excavation of dinosaurs in the Western United States for the last 30 years. And we saw the beginning of it when we were driving around, Ray, but it's continued at pace now. And United States is the only place in the world where there are lots of dinosaurs and it is legal to sell them and sell them commercially, to dig them and sell them commercially. So you have all the other dinosaur producing countries in the world, it is illegal to own and sell dinosaurs. But in the United States, if you find a dinosaur on private land, it's private property and you can buy and sell it. So there's a thriving commercial market in dinosaurs in the United States and lots of people are out there digging dinosaurs. Look, people looking for gold nuggets, people looking for dinosaurs, same kind of thing. So if I'm in England and I find a plesiosaur in my backyard, it's not mine to sell? No, England has it. It's property of the crowd. This is, this is it, like in England, it's full of treasures, right? England's been overrun by the you know the Vikings and by the Romans, et cetera. And so there's lots of ancient treasure in England. If you find that treasure, you have to report it and you can get rewarded for finding it, but you don't, yeah. it's not finders keepers. You, They're finding Roman hordes almost every year now. Yeah, there's some, some amazing, uh, that, there's that, um, yeah. that wonderful movie that came out last year about the archeological discovery. The Viking ship? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a great. Yeah, you know what, uh, just to say in the British Museum, my favorite room is the horde room which has all the hordes that they've discovered the last several hundred years. It's just phenomenal. Yeah. Next to the Elgin marbles, but let's not talk about that. <laughs> Elgin. But, hey, Elgin, excuse me. Elgin. All right, Elgin, you, you got me, Dave. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, back to the dueling dinosaurs. What are they? Yeah. And they're private and they got, they got sold, yeah, right? Yeah, they got sold. There, there are um, two dinosaurs found together. It looks like as Hell Creek Formation. There was a little bit of mystery when it was first found because... Um, a lot of times these things come onto the market and you don't know where they were found because the person brings the fossils onto the market. And this, um, this guy who calls himself the, the dinosaur cowboy, Clayton Phipps, found <laughs> um, two dinosaurs, two complete dinosaurs in close association. One was a Triceratops and one was a young Tyrannosaurus rex. And they were both... Oh, my God. They're both more or less complete. I saw them both. It's a giant boulders, and they basically are, each one has a skeleton in it, and the rock is really soft. You could cut it with a knife, and the problem is, they as they started digging these out, they realized that not only they have the, almost the entire skeleton, because you could see, like, there's the tip of the nose, and there's a tail, and there's a foot. You could see these were whole skeletons poking through the rock, but there was also skin on them. Oh. Wow. So the problem is, when you have dinosaur skin is that it's basically an imprint in the mud. It's not the skin isn't there, it's just an imprint in the mud. Right. So your initial thought when you see a dinosaur in the rock is to dig the rock away and expose the dinosaur. But if you do that, you remove the skin. 
And so, you, and if you don't, if you leave the skin in place, you don't get to see the bones. So these, the guy found <laughs> these incredible dinosaurs, but he was kind of stuck because he had to leave them in these big rocks because it would be in the rocks really soft. So how do you preserve the skin? With a, with a CT scan is the only way. Yeah, but the thing was like a five, I don't know how big they were. These are big rocks, Dave. These are like right. rocks that weigh several thousand pounds. So you need a big CT scanner. But you're right. That's the thing to do is to scan the whole thing image the entire skeleton in the block the 3D printed. and then decide, yeah, you could print the bones out if you want, but then you decide how are you going to dig this thing out of the rock? And so it was, uh, everybody recognized this is a, an amazing fossil. They call it a dueling dinosaur. It says here you have one um, theropod, the little T-Rex and the Triceratops. And there's a famous pair of dinosaurs that was found in Mongolia in the 60s by the I Polish saw those, expedition. I saw those in, right, uh, right. in New York. Yeah. Right, the Velociraptor. The, the fighting dinosaurs. Yeah. So right, dueling yeah. is, you know, okay, right? But um, they, there was a protoceratops and a velociraptor. Right. And literally the, the arm of the, velo of the velociraptor is in the beak of the protoceratops and the claw of the velociraptor is in the eye socket of the protoceratops. So those guys were really worth fighting. They like... They were fighting. The ones from Montana, the quote-unquote dueling dinosaurs, are adjacent to each other. They were like two feet away from each other. Oh. So they could have simply died in the same stream on the same day in the same year and be buried. Were they buried by a sand dune or was it through they, uh, a stream a, bed? It was a stream bed stream deposit. Stream bed, right. And right. So. Um, the, the Tyrannosaurus' face is broken. It's like its face is snapped to the right, the front of his Ooh. snout. So oh. you could say, oh, he got kicked in the face by the Triceratops as they were both dying and he broke the face. Or, <laughs> or the river, great, or the the river, river flood. Or he got hit in the hit tree by a tree branch and it broke his face. Who knows? So it ended up in a museum though, right? Yeah, so it's in the North Carolina State Museum in Raleigh, North Carolina, under the able hands of Lindsay Zana, who is a great dinosaur paleontologist who's been doing great work out in Utah. She was um, one of Scott Sampson's students and um i was visiting her recently she has some amazing oviraptor eggs from utah some of the best dinosaur eggs i've seen from utah mm. so there's some really very exciting um fossils that she was finding and then she was able to convince the board of trustees at the museum that they should acquire this dueling dinosaurs and they're presently building a new facility at the museum in raleigh which is going to open i think later this year or early next year all based around the dueling dinosaurs and how much so, do they uh, get for this prize? Uh, you know, I don't know that the number, if you read in the papers, I think it's like, it's probably in the, it's not, it's less than 10 million bucks. Um, right. But oh, what's... Well, should have let me know. I would have bought it and stuck it in my shed. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is what's happening now is that dinosaurs are all of a sudden, there's been a resurgence of, of high-priced dinosaurs. Um, recently, the uh, Deinonychus, which is a Stan. small dinosaur, Dan, yeah, yeah, Dan went for thirty-one point eight million dollars. It looks like that's going to end up in a museum in Abu Dhabi. Yeah, so it did yeah. end up in a public collection, but far, far away. But, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on uh, high bidding for dinosaurs? Well, I think what it's done is it's it's kind of it's legal first of all. So I would say that it's not illegal, uh, but it has really kind of made the American West this free-for-all like it has always been. You know, at first it was the gold rush, and then it was for the land, and now it's the dinosaurs. It's sort of a free-for-all for anybody to go out there and 
find stuff and sell it to the highest bidder. And, and it's going to circumvent paleontology and science. Well, pretty much. Going. I mean, it, it um, you know, not to say, I don't really cast aspersions on the people that do this because it's legal and they can do it, but it makes it very difficult for us, like professional paleontologists, to access property anymore because you used to be able to go and talk to a rancher and say, hey, can we go on your property and find a fossil and take it to a museum? They're like, no problem at all. But now it's like, no, someone's paying me for the right to look for dinosaurs on my property, so you can't come on the property. And so a lot of uh, people who have been collecting for museums for years now can't access property. And meanwhile, the property is being leased out to dinosaur collectors who are, in some cases, very talented and trained and experts and do a good job of collecting the fossil and the data and sell, when they sell the fossil, they sell the data with the fossils to the museum. In other cases, they go and sell the bones on eBay and break the dinosaurs up. So it's like this, right. you know, there's some good actors and there's some less than good actors out there. As you mm. find in any, in any part of uh, yeah, any business. It's just business, yeah. right? It's just business. You uh, work at the Smithsonian. You're the director of the, the Natural History. You yeah, work at the yeah, Smithsonian? Yeah. You mean yeah, the, he does. Yeah, the, the Smithsonian? Yes, but in 2009, the Paleontological Resources Protection Act was enacted. What, yeah. what, does, what did that change for everybody? So this, this act came out at the very beginning of Obama's first term, and it had languished during the prior administrations. And when the law was first conceived, it was a law that was conceived to protect vertebrate fossils. But when the law came out, it applied to all fossils, which caught all of us by surprise because... The, most of the people had sort of perceived that invertebrate fossils and plant fossils didn't need special legal protection, but that vertebrate fossils did, like dinosaurs and rare vertebrate fossils did. But the law covered them all. And that's been an interesting thing because the federal government manages lots and lots of uh, fossil-bearing land in the American West and elsewhere in the country. And there's only a few paleontologists working for the federal government. They work for the Bureau of Land Management, for the Forest Service, um, for the state, for the national parks. And they're suddenly challenged with managing all fossils on all federal land in the American wow. uh, nation. And so that's, it's been a challenge. Forest Service published its rules first. BLM is still working on their rules. So I can't collect brachiopods on BLM land without a permit now? Uh, so you, Dave Strassman, can because you're a citizen. But m uh -huh. me, Kirk Johnson, as a museum professional, cannot do so without a permit uh -huh. because I'm a professional. So there's a subtle difference there. Now, you can mm. sell the ones you find. You collect them for personal use. Sure. Uh, you you sure. wouldn't be able to get a permit to collect dinosaurs. I would. But it's a, it's a subtle distinction. There's sort of a, what they call a recreational collecting that's walled off. It still allows some recreational collecting for invertebrates and plants. But what it's done is it's um, created some confusion because there are, for instance, a lot of really skilled amateur collectors who collect, say, trilobites or ammonites and donate them to museums who now are sort of at the edge of the law. Like they, have, they, they might have to get a permit if they dig too big of a hole. Um, you know, there's all this ambiguity that's brought together by this law, including plants and invertebrates with the vertebrate fossils. So it does add some protection to vertebrates on federal land, only federal land, doesn't talk about state land or private land, and it makes it more complicated for, vertebrate paleo for invertebrate paleontologists and paleobotanists. So it's, it's been a controversial rule. You know, they, there has not been a commensurate uh, increase in funding for federal 
fossil regulators to get out there and really do the right job of educating people about fossils and making permitting um, quick and easy. So it's it's been challenging. Hmm. Yeah, it's a little mind blowing, isn't it? It just I guess maybe Dave and I doing paleo nerds for all this professionally, uh, maybe we have to get permits now, Dave. I don't know. Are we professionals? Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure with the amount of uh, interviews we've done, we can probably, <laughs> I know a few people who know a few people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we're, yeah. We're, I think, in fact, uh, we were invited uh, to camp out in some very private places in Dinosaur National Monument by Rebecca, if you remember. You yes, wanted I to do. go and and see some really awesome trackways deep, deep away from the public. So uh, I haven't taken her up on that, but that's uh, some of the fantastic opportunities that we've been availed. And we also talked to Scott Foss, who's with the Park Service, too, kind of dialing rules in. Well, he's so. the he's the Park Service paleontologist. He's the BLM paleontologist. Oh, BLM guy. Yeah. That's right. See, now My we're... mistake. My mistake. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just at Dinosaur National Monument a couple of weeks ago where really? um, they have rebuilt the uh, building overlying the famous Earl Douglas Quarry. Because when Ray and I were there in 2005, the building had been condemned because they built the building on top of the, the quarry spoils. And the building was literally like breaking in half because the support beams were built on the old tail tailings of the quarry. They closed the building in 2009 and reopened the new building in 2011, October of 2011. So I was just there for the first time since Ray and I had been there a long time ago. Yeah. And um, beautiful new structure. The wall of dinosaurs is insanely cool. And the, um, the really nice little museum there in downtown Vernal is, is great as well. So it's, um, it's well worth a drive to the northwestern corner of Colorado or the that remote part of Utah where Dinosaur National Monument is because it's a great new museum and the Dinosaur National Monument is is there for viewing. It's on my bucket list. You haven't been there? Nope. It'll nope. blow your mind, man. That I know, that, I know, I know. There's so many, so many things. This is the place though. This is this is like the pilgrimage site for all dinosaur lovers. It is, it well, is. I'm going I, on my first dig, actually. Yeah, really? Actually, he's he's excited. He's going out to go tell him. Hello, uh, um, yeah, I'm going out uh, with John Scanella and Lee Hall uh, out to uh, eastern Montana, nice. where there is a juvenile T-Rex, a triceratops frill, and, as I said to Ray, a turtle the size of a tire. So, <laughs> so this is the Museum of the Rockies guys in Bozeman, yeah. right? This is the yeah, legacy yeah, yeah. Of, of Jack Horner and his his museum, yeah. and these are, Scanella is a former Jack Horner student, and... Yeah, Lee Hall. So my son and I, Carson and I, are going out. It'll be a great week. No, Lee, uh, you remember Ray that Lee Hall is married to Ashley. You guys interviewed yeah. on right. your show, so it's it's all the big fossil family. Right, and on their honeymoon, they followed our book, "Cruising the Fossil Freeway." Yeah, see what it, see how it all ties back in. I thought that was going to start a huge trend. That was going to be a huge <laughs> trend, and it never came through. The big well, yeah, it, well, it did for one couple. Yeah. We'll, we'll call victory. I was reading back through the book, and, uh, you know, I, I don't claim that we actually came up with the term paleo nerds, but maybe I could. No, we did. You well, did. I, no, you did. It was our That's term. Well, we started we, this podcast. But we have written proof here, and I quote from page 49, where you say, I began to realize that wherever we went, we bumped into people just like ourselves, paleo nerds. So there, there it, it was there born. 
Well, you so, know what? I think we should give him 10% of all the income we've made off the of paleo nerds. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Yeah, it's so a great idea. We're rolling yeah, in it. Yeah, you're going to owe us, actually, because there's been zero. We do, we do this for free. I'll take my wheelbarrow of cash to the bank. Looking back 20 <laughs> years, you know, so this has been great. You know, I've known you for 28 years, Kirk. And, you know, we became friends. We drove around. And actually, at one time, we calculated that we were maybe in a it's been almost a year together, you know, solidly, which is a lot, a lot of time. By the way, did you know you actually spend 26 years of your life asleep? You know, it's kind of a weird thing. I was just like looking up the other day, but yeah. And guess what? I avoid your snoring. During <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, during I have a those... CPAP now, so I'm cured. So you can sleep near me now. Really? But, wait, wait, stop. Yeah. What? You're cured? I have a CPAP. What's that mean? What's well, uh continuous? Well, actually, Kirk, it's a machine, right? Is that a it's machine? It's a breathing machine. machine that stuffs air down no, your you... throat that keeps you from snoring. It's a handy So device. you're going to take that in the tent with you when we go fossiling in Alaska? He plugs it right yeah. into the outcrop, and it gets the fossil yeah. fuel. Yeah. Oh, okay. Use the fossil fuel okay. energy. Great. Keeps it from great. snoring. Well, what I was leading up to in my preamble there was that you know we spent all this time. We've seen this resurgence, or really kind of a dinosaur renaissance, and uh, paleo love. We help foster paleo love, but really. We began to see that paleontology, I began to realize that how relevant it was, you know, and I know that one of the things that you've done since the Smithsonian and since all the controversy around climate change is that one of the things you actually tasked your scientists with um, was actually, hey, well, let's see what the temperature has been and what the climate has been, not only for the last few, you know, million years, but since it's in the fossil record. We go back to the Cambrian and maybe even before. And what were the results of that? What's, what's, what's the long view of climate and the planet and where we're at now? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And I say, um, when I started doing paleontology back in the eighties, we uh, were aware that you could use fossils to reconstruct ancient climates. And then we used fossil leaves, for instance. There is a famous um, thing where you could actually measure the percentage of species of fossil leaves that had smooth margins. And that percentage would correlate with the actual mean annual temperature of the climate in which those trees were growing. It works in modern forests, for instance. You can go to a modern forest and grab a bag of leaves. You can sort the leaves into different species measure the percentage that have smooth margins, and actually tell... What do you mean by smooth margins? You mean the edges? Yeah, they, some leaf have teeth on them and some have smooth edges. Right. And so it's the percentage of smooth margin leaves is correlated with temperature. So if you go to a tropical rainforest, for instance, about 90% of the leaves are smooth margins, about 10% have teeth. So it's, it's called leaf margin analysis. And for the longest time, it was been one of the exports of paleobotany to the world of science, was we could tell you what the temperature was. And um, so we were aware of this, but, but it wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s when people started worrying a lot about climate and suddenly paleobotanists who had considered themselves to be largely irrelevant to modern issues, suddenly like, whoa, we can tell you what the temperature was 64 million years ago. So we started exporting these temperatures and this is what we call a climate proxy. The leaf fossils are telling you what an ancient climate was. So- um, Wait, how do you do this in a conifer forest where all you have are needles? You don't. Okay. You need a broad-leafed forest where there's lots of broad right. leaves. And so, and this was done, and there's a famous geologist named Jack Wolf from the U.S. Geological Survey who studied modern forests around the world and plotted the relative abundance of smooth versus 
uh, toothed leaves and, and produced these global curves. And then everybody started using it for the fossils. And all of a sudden, paleobotanists could tell you climate at a given time, but they could also show you climate over time. And that was part of how we started to understand that there used to be warmer periods in the past. And once people started getting worried about the fact that the climate was warming, then the paleobotanists were able to say, hey, wait a minute, I can tell you what the world will look like when it warms to a certain temperature because I have fossils that lived in a warmer earth. So looking into the past is the same thing as looking into the future. And suddenly we are, as paleobotany in general, I think we were all like, oh my goodness, we're actually relevant. Because no one actually thought that paleobotanists <laughs> were relevant to anything. But suddenly it was like, wow, you guys matter. And I was like, that was pretty cool. So that was one of the things that actually got me into the whole climate conversation was that I knew about ancient climates because I was a paleobotanist. And when we were building the deep time exhibit that opened in June of 2019 in Washington, D.C., I challenged Scott Wing and, and Brian Huber, who are two of the paleontologists, who are both excellent paleoclimatologists. Scott uses fossil leaves and Brian uses marine uh, forams to get climate temperature. Um, I said, look, you guys, paleontologists all know that there's a climate record for the last half a billion years, the entire Phanerozoic, the, from the Cambrian to the present. But it's hard to make a single curve because at different time periods, you use different climate proxies to get your, your estimates. Right. Some places it's forum, some places it's leaves, sometimes it's clams, all this kind of stuff. And I said to them, I said, is it possible for you guys to pull together a group of people that span the entire time period, the last 500 million years, and look at all those climate proxies and get in a room and argue yourself to a climate curve for the last 500 million years that you would all agree on? Wow. And they did it. They actually did yeah, it. Really? Um, and it's an yes. amazing thing because, um, you know, it's about 40 of them and they um, worked on it. And then they launched a project, which is called the Fantastic Project, which is, uh, I don't know, remember exactly what the um, acronym stands for. It's basically a Phanozoic climate curve. And there's a postdoc student named Emily Judd, who you should probably interview on this um, on PaleoNerds, who has created this 500 million year climate curve for the planet. And it's a live thing, so the new data can be pumped into it and tweak the curve. But one of the take-home really? messages is that for about 75% of the last 500 million years, the planet has not had polar ice caps. Wow. So the condition where we have today, where we have polar ice caps, that's in the minority. That's 25% of Earth history. And it's a common thing on the planet for when you have polar ice caps, the climate to change and the polar ice caps to melt away. So, we're, so where we're going the in the future is, is where we've been for three quarters of the past, if you want to think about it that right. way. Right. So, I mean, you can think of it as, well, we're just going back to normal. You could think that. And in a way, that is true, um, which is, you know, which is kind of a wonderful thing. Yeah, but there's proof that we're pumping carbon dioxide into our atmosphere. Well, well, Dave, but like this is the whole point is that humans are doing geology right now. And in the past, sure. we've gone from cold to warm and from warm to cold. We went from cold to warm was because carbon dioxide was being pumped into the atmosphere by volcanoes. Now it's just people. So when people say seven point something billion of us, oh, way more than that, my friend. We're about we to, we're about to crest eight billion, as, and probably January, February of twenty three will crest eight billion. Well, I did say seven point something. There you go. <laughs> but let me ask you this: what 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 is the main driver through time for that climate uh, variation? Is it does it just come down to pretty much volcanoes? It's carbon dioxide. And what they spew out? It's carbon dioxide. It's it's the when the carbon is in the air, 
When you have lots right. of carbon dioxide in the air, the Earth's climate is warm. And when the carbon dioxide is drawn out of the air, the planet gets cold. But what drives that? It, well, it's a combination of Through things. Time. Right there. Through time. If you time. think about it, there's... Um, before us. Before us, you had volcanoes were emitting carbon dioxide. Right. Plants were drawing carbon dioxide down. But also the weathering of rocks draws carbon dioxide down. Right. So if a mountain range gets uplifted, it starts to weather it, it'll draw the carbon dioxide down. Didn't the weathering cause the first snowball earth? Probably the case that you, you get these events. Because basically, you, if you want to make it warmer, you have to have something that's emitting carbon dioxide. You have to make it cold, you have something that's drawing it down. So in the absence of photosynthesis, photosynthesis in the, you know, a lot of, there weren't But you know what's plants. crazy, though? The that statement, the weathering creates snowball earth, you're talking such immense amount of times, it's almost right. unfathomable. Sure. What, weathering on this planet creates a climate change? That is so much time to pass. But here's the thing, Dave, there's, there's two kinds of um, carbon, carbon cycles. There's the fast carbon cycle and the slow one. The slow one is volcanoes burping out CO2 and rocks weathering. That takes millions of years. The fast one is trees growing, and trees rotting, and carbon in the atmosphere, and carbon in the oceans, and carbon in animals. So that's moving pretty rapidly. And what we're doing as humanity is we're taking fossil fuels, which are buried carbon assets. Out of the ground. Out of the ground. And we are, those, are, those are assets of the slow carbon cycle, and we're putting them into the fast carbon cycle. So we're basically right. accelerating the planet's processes by driving our cars around and flying planes around and making concrete and doing agriculture and chopping forests yeah. down. Now, I don't know if you can answer this, but because of what you do for a living, but is it <laughs> kind of proof that the doubt of climate change was because the petroleum companies pumped millions of dollars into propaganda saying that it, we were questioning it? Now, this is well documented in Merchants of Doubt, Naomi Oreskes' right, right. book. I mean, this is no question that there was a strong blowback from the industry. And you know, I did a lot of uh, talks to oil and gas companies. I went down to Houston and talked to the American Association of Petroleum Geologists about the fossil record of climate change. And I expected, since oil and gas geologists were geologists and carbon chemists, that they would agree with me. But I found, to my amazement, that they didn't. And that's their paycheck. Well, it's their paycheck. But of course, it's you got to think about it this way. And I, I was like, are these bad guys or what's going on? And it turns out that um, fossil fuels have made our modern economy. I mean, that's why you're sitting yeah. in a nice room and that's why you drive a car. I mean, we all benefit. So I think you can't, if you've ever flicked on a light switch or driven a car anywhere, you can't really throw stones. We're all part of the demand side of, course. of the fossil fuel economy. But there has to be awareness that there is a transition from a fossil fuel world to a non-fossil fuel world. And it's not going to be overnight. It's going to take decades. But it's a race now, right? Because we are, we, the carbon budget, which is the budget of how much carbon we can put in the atmosphere before we drive uh, global warming above 1.5 degrees centigrade, we're getting precariously close to blowing the carbon budget. So you can say it's going to take a long time to make a transition. But if it does take a long time, then we're going to blow the carbon budget and we're going to warm the planet. 1.5 Celsius, is that the tipping point that causes the world to be a runaway greenhouse? It, no, we, um, we don't actually know what the tipping points are. We don't know when you hit a point of going too far until you go there. 
But it, and Greenland it, we collapses. We do know that 1.5 is a temperature we don't want to go past because we're going to we know what it's going to do to sea level rise, for instance, and, and other issues. And we're seeing it already, these heat domes that are emerging over places like the Pacific Northwest or the Arctic. I was talking to somebody in Alaska today out on the uh, um, Alaskan Peninsula who saw over 100 degrees Fahrenheit what? in Alaska. Yeah, I was talking to- what? You mean like Cold Harbor? No, Chignik. There? I was talking to the folks in Chignik. Oh, and it was 100 degrees Chignik. in Chignik. No. And so, and you know, this is, we're seeing temperatures we've never seen before. And- uh, the uh, it's it's what we're seeing is a planet that is warming and we don't really want it to warm. So as hard as it is to make the transition from a fossil fuel economy to a, a renewable fuel economy, uh, and we all know it's like, wow, it's impossible to do this fast. So we're faced with a culture with a, an impossible challenge, but the consequences are significant. I have a question. If we don't do anything, is there a natural earth process that can reverse our pumping of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? Sure, the same process that reversed it in the past. Any future that you fear, you can go into the fossil record and find an example of that future preserved for your viewing pleasure. What I'm saying, is there a natural process that could save us? There is a natural process that will reduce CO2. It's called rock weathering. And it will save us very slowly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it won't save us fast enough. Anyway. Well, I should almost ask my question now because we're, we're there. Well, I was saying, saying, yeah, let's take us back to the Permian, man. Yeah, here we go. 90% of the planet dead. But, yeah, but that Dave, I think it is time for your, your big question. Then I'll follow up with one yeah. little question. Um, so uh, I, I wrote this out in advance, but I'll pretend like I'm not reading it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just do it naturally, Dave. Yeah. Deliver it with feeling. Yeah. So your contribution to paleontology, it's obviously prolific. Now your outreach through media is ever present, and I love watching you on TV. Now, given your current stature as head of the one of the most prestigious natural history museums in the world, I'll bet you're constantly networking and collaborating with the cream of the world's paleontologists, paleobotanists, naturalists, and scientists. Kirk, you are plugged into the factual consensus on this planet. You agree? I agree. So my question with regards to human-caused pollution, extinction, and global heating, based on the cumulative knowledge from your esteemed peers, do you think we are headed in the right direction to be able to save ourselves from ourselves? We are not headed in the right direction. There are certain people who are trying to turn the boat in the right direction, but I mean, we are losing a race right now. The amount of people on the planet is still increasing. We're increasing our use of fossil fuels. We have um, horrible distractions like the global pandemic and the war in Ukraine, which are perceived to be more urgent than the biodiversity crisis or the warming crisis. And yet at the end of the day, it's a single planet with a finite number of humans that are making decisions. And the collective decision set is not slowing down the warming. It's not slowing down the, de the uh, decrease in harvesting of, of wild animals and plants and fishes. And so we're, we're in a challenging situation where science can actually see the future pretty clearly, but the urgency of now for so many people has to do with their daily food or their recreation or 
the war in Ukraine or response to the pandemic. So we, we're in a real classic situation right now where we're responding to stuff that we see perceived to be in need of immediate response. And when you talk to people what needs immediate response, most people aren't telling you that it's climate and the biodiversity crisis. Now, there's gonna be a new um, COP, the Committee of the Parties meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt in November. And there's also gonna be the biodiversity group. These are the two UN gatherings that discuss climate and biodiversity. And there are a lot of people working on the solutions and we do have the tools to start to decarbonize the atmosphere, decarbonize the energy streams, start preserving nature and provide a viable future for humans and wild nature on planet Earth. So we, we know what the desired outcome is. And if you think about it this way, um, this is the year 2022. So a child born today will very likely be a citizen of the 22nd century, will live to see the year 2100. Mm. That's a long time in the future, but um, this entire saga I just outlined, the future of the planet, is gonna play out during the lifetime of that child. So we're in a place where the things we care about the most, our families, our children, our grandchildren, are the either the beneficiaries of a successful response to the climate crisis, or not. Yeah. It's it's you know, it's just in the, it's in the time frame of one human life now. Do you think that there is a way that science can enter into the political realm in a meaningful, substantial way? I think that the answer is yes, and the answer is children because you learn about the world when you're young. And by the time you're in your 20s, you're thinking about other things, it seems to me. So I, I think that our target oh, yeah. audience really are teenagers. And you think about, you talk to Gen Z or, or Gen Alpha, the next one, right? There's these two, oh my gosh. The, the, yeah. the two post-millennial generations, Gen Z and Gen Alpha. These are the people that are now five years old, 15 years old, that are going to inherit the 21st century and live to see the 22nd century. And... Uh, to help them become not only literate uh, citizens, but also numerate citizens. Because, you know, as you say, Dave, most people don't know about numbers. That kids are, they may be literate, but they're not numerate. They don't understand math and, and equations. But I think to help kids get excited about the world and understand the world, because it's going to be their world, and we're handing them a profound challenge. We're handing this incoming generations, Gen Z and Gen Alpha, and you can see where Greta is so annoyed because we're basically saying humans have been around for 300,000 years. We've had a fantastic run. Civilization's been here for 10,000 years. That's been awesome. We've had the Industrial Revolution for 200 years. And uh, so there's a few problems we've created and we're going to hand them to you. <laughs> and so Gen Z and Zen Alpha get, get the cumulative um, it up. challenge of all of humanity's woes and goodness uh, handed to them, and I think it's incumbent on us, this PaleoNerd podcast, us, the National Museum of Natural History, us, all scientists, the you know anybody who understands the world in some way to help um, little kids understand the world and help them realize that the future is composed of choices, and a suite of, there are a suite of choices right now that will get us through this century to a desirable outcome in the year twenty one hundred. 
and and I think that's a, that's the point to land on is that there you know there are ways and that you don't fill the next generations to come completely with fear and that it's useless that there are these choices that can be made you have to give them oh. some semblance of a future that's worth living you have to be optimistic right, right? because the problems are not solved by pessimists I'll guarantee you that <laughs> you want a problem to be yeah. solved you have to find somebody who's think I can solve oh, that problem I'm going to make a meme that's a great meme <laughs> Well, it's, I know you're looking right at me, Kirk, when you, because uh, <laughs> he's always the cheerful, positive guy. And I'm yeah. like, oh, God, we're all going to die. If we were up to Ray, there would have been an apocalypse already. Yeah. Well, I let's forget. wrap this up with your question, Ray. That's, which what, that's where fun. I'm going, It'll be Dave. fun. It'll it's be a fun one. Awesome. And I, I'm trying to remember where, you know, I, I'm going to ask you the time travel thing, man. Yep. Well, where did you go last time? I wonder if they're still going to go to that same happy place. But wait, place, wait, wait. So. Just, just do it in your Ray Troll way because I oh, my Ray Troll. sound effects. Okay. Hey, Kirk Johnson, if you have the ability right now to like get in your little machine and go way back in time, not yesterday. I want to know about deep time. Where in deep time would you land, man? And what would you want to see? So the last time you asked me this question, <laughs> I said the late Cretaceous because that's what yeah. that's 66 million years ago. But I'm going to give you a different answer this time. Oh, boy. OK. I want to go to the year 2066. Ooh. OK. You're breaking Is, the rules. And you will have died by then or you'll be. I don't uh, know. If, if I'm alive, I'll be 106. Oh, you'll be 106. But I, I figure I'm if dead. I'm 106, I'm, I'm not going to be very useful for doing field work and stuff like that. I like to be a cogent scientist with lots of energy in the year 2066, because by that point in time, human population will have peaked on planet Earth and we started going down, and we will see if we've risen to the challenge of the 21st century. And I'm very curious to see uh, how humans handle this century. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just- But why that year? But why, but why not 2065? Because I was uh, 66 million years ago and I'm going to 2066. I'm just going to roll ah, it forward. Ah, I see okay. how the brain works, how the Kirk Johnson brain I, works. I'm, okay. I'm just, but you violated the rules. I told you to go back, but now I, I accept. You're going to go wait, forward. Wait, no, I get I'm, it. I'm going it's back starting. to the future, man. There you go. Oh, boom. Yeah. That's <laughs> mine. Yeah. Boom. All right. <laughs> So you want to see if we made the right choice. Yeah, because uh, in, here's the thing. My whole life I've dealt with people who can't understand geologic time. And it baffles me because they have no problem thinking about hundreds of millions of dollars. But if I tell them hundreds of millions of years, their brains explode. So it's not that hard to conceive of deep time. But what we've all collectively realized in the field of science is that all of a sudden there's enough humans that we are a geologic force and the things that used to take millions of years now happen in decades. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's a good place to land, I think, yeah. in 2066, and everything yeah. is okay. Everything right? is it's okay. It's going to be sweet, man. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Don't think I'll be around to uh, cry on that day. Oh, I'm not going to be here. <laughs> no, we're going to we'll have be. you guys both a little cryogenic containers. I'll wheel you around. <laughs> there you go. Take you my go. head. Yeah. Put it in the freezer. Get me Take out. Take my yeah. head, please. Yeah. Well, Kirk, this has been fantastic, as always. Thanks, you guys. It's a ton of fun. Yeah. You're doing a great job with Paleo Nerds Podcast. I actually listen to them all, which is saying something.
Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. That's really cool that you're listening. And uh, let's get back to work on that book, man. Yeah. I said I'll do it today. Hey, Kirk, thanks for joining us today here. It's it's wonderful to have you back. And uh, rock on, dude. Thanks. Yeah. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you on our show. It's my pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot. Well, that's always so much fun to talk to him. I could listen to him for hours. Well, you know, uh, hanging out with Dr. Johnson is always a treat, and it was great to have him back. And, you know, he's a friend of the show. It's great. He said some nice yeah. things about our show. I know. I know. That was nice. Yeah, no, that was cool. We talked paleo and uh, got caught up. In, um... But you know what I liked about, you know, I asked him, are we going to save ourselves from ourselves? And he pretty much said that we are not doing it at the moment and that we have a lot of work to do. It wasn't a resounding yes. Well, he's a realist. <laughs> yeah. And he's but he's plugged a... in. He's plugged into all the scientists on planet Earth. He is. And we, uh, we pessimists kind of got dissed there, you know? Well, I'm an optimist that technology will save us. That's my optimism. But given recent events lately, I'm not too sure anymore. So it's a, I'm just going to build my model airplanes till my next tour and continue to uh, edit Paleo Nerds. And we're going to get some awesome guests coming up. Yeah, we have more coming, don't we? Yeah, we do, man. And uh, we pessimists are having a heyday now. But, you know... I'm just going to keep uh, drawing my little pictures out in my studio and changing the world one little pen stroke at a time. Fantastic. And, paleo and how was the salmon run this year? I, this is the first year in a long time I haven't been to Ketchikan. Here in Ketchikan, I saw some king salmon in the stream just last week down at Ketchikan Creek. I was excited about that. Right. The sanders are in, and I don't quite have the full fish report okay. yet. Well, so, um, hopefully we'll progress. do another interview next week. And uh, yeah, we're gonna. we won't be dropping these every week, but we'll be dropping them uh, enough that uh, you'll want to listen. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm in it for the long haul, man. So let's keep uh, keep on keep rocking. Doing. So from beautiful, rainy Ketchikan, and one, Alaska. Wait, wait, one other question. What? 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 Do you want to do a live show of this somewhere sometime soon? Uh, somewhere like in the Midwest like we'll or something. We'll go to a museum. We'll do this live. Yeah. Oh my That'd gosh! That'd be fun in front of a live audience. Yeah. Okay. It'd With... be you and me and a paleontologist and a bunch of your art on a screen behind us, where you click the little button and and go oh. do the we slides. Look at pa- uh, you know, I feel good if I have my little images. Oh, just totally. Like you have be, your, it has to have your images. Has to have your images. Okay. All the and images. And the third paleontologist, a real paleontologist. A real one. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, Great. I'm down. Great. I'm done with it. Now Good. can I say goodbye? Yeah. <laughs> All right, this is uh, David Strassman saying goodbye from beautiful Ojai, California, where I had my oak trees trimmed, and there's still no water for the last three years. And signing off for beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, where I have a three-legged bear roaming in my yard. A black <laughs> bear, you know, from beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska. Ah! We'll see you later, Dave. It's been fun, right. man. See you, Ray, next time. Over and out. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. Paleo